The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, good morning. It's, it's good to, to be with you all. What a wonderful time of singing this morning and hearing from Psalm 37. We're in the book of Esther. We're finishing the book of Esther this morning. And just by way of reminder, uh, the book of Esther is unique in the Bible in that it, the name of God is not mentioned. But I hope that I've shown you throughout that even though God's name is not mentioned, he is all over the pages of Esther. We, we have seen that he is actually present. Even when he seems most absent, he is at work and on his throne and sovereign. You know, Psalm 37 talked about um, not worrying. And uh, I, I remember being a kid and thinking of the words of Jesus when he says on the Sermon on the Mount that who by worrying can add a, a day to your life? Look at the birds of the air. They don't toil. Look at the flowers of the field. God closed them, and they're just there for a day and gone the next. And I remember being a kid, and, and I was a kid who didn't really worry much, so that didn't impact me greatly. Uh, it, it was more like the uh, theme song of, of my generation, right? Uh, Don't worry, be happy. That was on the radio. And that was about how I lived my childhood. Don't worry, be happy. I had a great childhood growing up. And, but as I've gotten older, I've noticed that sin that idol of worry and anxiety creeps in, doesn't it? I was battling it this week. I had to preach this sermon to myself because I got all in my head and in my worries. And isn't that, the, isn't that terrible when you're laying in your bed and you can't go to sleep and you're trying to go to sleep, trying to distract yourself with whatever you use to distract yourself, noises of the ocean off of your iPhone or music or an audio book or... Whatever it is, the TV, whatever it is, and yet you just can't stop worrying. And yet, who by worrying can add a day to his life? In fact, all the studies show that by worrying, all we do is reduce our lifespan. God's wise. And he's present when he seems most absent. That, that's what we saw at the beginning of the book of Esther. And we see his, his sovereign providence over all things, everything that's going on in our life. It is first passed through the hands of a loving Father in heaven who's on his throne. And so he has you and I right where he wants us. It's not always right where we want us, but it's where he wants us. And here today we're going to see God's protection of his people. As I mentioned, God isn't mentioned in the book, but we've seen how God has raised up in Esther chapter 4 verse 14... Esther, for such a time as this to be queen, married to one of the greatest, most powerful men in history, King Xerxes of the Persian Empire. She's raised up at a time when her people are about to be wiped out in the Persian Empire because Haman, who is Xerxes' right-hand guy, his grand vizier, gets a law passed, an edict passed that says all the Jews are going to be wiped out. And yet in the providence of God, Mordecai had saved Xerxes' life. 
And it had been written in the books. And as Xerxes was unable to sleep and probably worrying and tried to read the books of the histories to go to sleep, maybe that's the way you do it. You read a nice, boring book, right? He couldn't sleep. He called up his advisors and said, read me the histories. I'll go to sleep. It's probably, you know, my book, my book comes out next uh, year and you can read it. It'll probably put you right to sleep, an academic book. Bam, just like that. Two pages and you're out. He, he, uh, Xerxes, he's reading this and he hears that Mordecai had saved his life and he said, did we ever do anything to honor Mordecai? And Haman goes, well, he didn't say Mordecai, right? He said, who, what should we do for the guy that the king delights to honor? And, more, and Haman thought it was him. And so Haman says, oh man, you need to get a donkey. You need to give him the finest robes and put your ring on him and parade him through the streets and give him a big celebration. And Xerxes says, okay, do that for Mordecai. And Haman is furious. And then, of course, Esther calls. We saw this last time. Esther called Haman and Xerxes into a feast. And then she says, Haman's trying to kill all my people. And Xerxes is furious. He comes back in. He sees Haman pleading with Esther, grabbing her legs, but misinterpreting it, thinking he's trying to attack Esther. And he has Haman hanged from the same gallows that Haman was going to hang Mordecai. Haman had no idea that in condemning the Jews, he was condemning the queen, and in doing so, he was threatening her life. And so Xerxes acts to save the life of the queen. He's startled by this. When he hears about the conspiracy, he condemns Haman to death on his own gallows. But the story's not over. The Jews still have an edict calling for their annihilation, and Xerxes is not going to undo this edict. You know, and when you think about the flow of of redemptive history, where this is at in the story of the Bible, the Jews are in exile. They're in exile because they disobeyed God and they were idolatrous. And so God gave them over to the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And so the, the Jews are under judgment by God in exile. And perhaps some of them wondered if God had abandoned them. In his judgment. In fact, the book of Lamentations, we're not going to turn there, but I want to read you the end of the book of Lamentations because there's this haunting possibility that perhaps God has rejected his people. Says this, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22 Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return, renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Of course, the book of Lamentations was written during the exile. It was a lamentation of grief over God's judgment on His people. God disciplines His people. That's what the book of Hebrews says. What loving father doesn't discipline his son? In the same way, God scourges us, it says, so that we may share in His inheritance. And so the Jewish people are under God's judgment and here in Esther chapter 8, we're going to read chapters, uh, we're going to go from 8 all the way to the end of the book. But in Esther chapter 8, we pick up the story right after Haman is hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Chapter 8 verse 1, on that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told her what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. 
Now with Haman out of the way, Esther requested that the Jews be spared the approaching massacre. We're going to see that the king was unable to overturn or unwilling to overturn his previous edict. And so he's going to make another edict. But before that, we see the promotion of Mordecai. Esther tells of her relation to Mordecai that that she's blood relation to him. And we don't know how much time passed. We do know that two months and ten days passed between Haman's edict to kill all the uh, Jews. I'm sorry, yeah, the official edict and the edict to to overturn that the Jews could defend themselves. But Mordecai gets promoted. Um, Esther finally reveals her nationality, her relationship to Mordecai. And this, instead of hindering Mordecai's position, it actually helps him. He actually receives Haman's position of grand vizier of right hand to the king. The king takes off his signet ring, presents it to Mordecai in verse 2. Mordecai receives Haman's position and it reminds me of 1 Peter 5. Verse 6, where God says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Mordecai had humbled himself. He had done what he believed was right in the eyes of the Lord in defending his people. He had appealed to Esther to, that, to speak to the king because she was raised up for such a time as this. He had fasted. Presumably he had prayed. And God lifted him up. He didn't receive the recognition at the time when he saved the king's life, but in due time he did. Can you attest to this in your own life? There's been times where you've humbled yourself under God's mighty, sovereign hand, knowing that he's in control of your life, he's sovereign, and he's raised you up and lifted you up in due time. It's not always our timing, is it? Spurgeon would say God is rarely early, never late, and always right on time. And isn't that true? He, he rarely comes in early when you want him to. I want to be lifted up today. I want all my problems to be solved today. And the Lord says, no, I love you too much to do that. I want you to grow. I want you to trust me. I want you to humble yourself under my mighty hand because you too often want to be king in your life. You want to be the boss and you want to be the king and you actually are committing idolatry in doing so. And so the Lord says, I'm going to teach you I'm going to break you of your idolatry and your pride and your self-sufficiency. And you're going to be at the end of yourself and you're not going to know what to do. You're not going to know where the answers are coming from. You're not going to know how you're going to be delivered and it means you have to trust me, God says. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. That's hard for us who are self-sufficient kind of people, isn't it? It's hard for us who are American because Americanism is self-sufficiency in bold letters. I can pick myself up and I can make something of myself and I can go from being nothing to something in whatever area it is. And it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's what we teach our kids to do, to be ambitious, to seek to go to college, to seek to improve themselves, to seek to have a better life than we had. And yet in the mix of all of that, there's a very anti-Christian philosophy in that isn't it that we don't need God because we can go from nothing to something in this country we don't really need God to help us we can do it ourselves, or we can just network and make enough friends and make enough acquaintances that they can do it for us or we can marry into the right family and they can do it for us (laughs) 
May God remove self-sufficiency from us so that we would learn not to trust in ourselves but Him. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1. He said, we despaired even of life itself. We were at the end of ourselves. Why? So that we would stop trusting in ourselves and trust in the one who knows how to even raise the dead. Well, back to Esther. Esther in verse 3 petitions the king. Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, if it please the king and if I found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which she wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So Esther, she doesn't stop with personal deliverance. She was concerned about her people, the whole Jewish community throughout the Persian empire. And she falls at the king's feet and weeps. These strong emotions pleading the king's mercy. Now she's also very shrewd here because she puts all the blame on Haman and she avoids blaming the king even though he's ultimately responsible. And she even appealed to his own feelings for her. His happiness with her. If he's pleased with me. If the king is pleased with me. She knew he was. She had seen nothing but his favor. And so his response was to make another decree which is going to counter the initial one. And here's what it says, verse 9, The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods." On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So here's the edict. The one who writes it is Mordecai. And by implication, Esther was involved as well when the king says, both of you can write this edict and it cannot be revoked. 
And the purpose was to give the Jews enough time to defend themselves. What's interesting is the Jews are also allowed, if people attack them and they defend themselves, they could take whatever they want from who they kill. They could plunder their enemies. And in the providence of God, the day appointed was the same day Haman's edict had set for plundering the Jews. And the obvious reason is so that they could defend themselves on the day people came to kill them. And now, because the Jews had permission to defend themselves, I think one of the main purposes of the edict was to scare off anybody who had ideas. They could just go slaughter Jews and take their stuff. Now they're going to defend themselves. And so then the delivery in verses 13 and 14, you see it, it's mentioned all throughout these king's horses that are the best of the best that go through all the country. It's like an old school postal service. And they were quite well known uh, for their postal service. It was, uh, it, it was, it was uh, known throughout the world at that time. But these words that are used of them racing out and spurred on and riding, uh, it heightens the urgency of the narrative. It's like, are they going to make it in time? If we were making a movie of this, they would see the horses riding out at night and they would be, the horses would all be lathered and the men would be tired and they'd be handing off the letters at the last minute, at the, at the last hour. Well, that, it got there well before the last hour, but you know how movies are. They got to heighten the urgency. And the sensation of it, well, verses 15 to 17. When the edict is read to all the peoples, especially in the capital, in Susa, everybody gets excited and happy. Verse 15, Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. What a reversal. Mordecai is vindicated. Mordecai is promoted. He comes out in the city in regal attire and they celebrate and have a party. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 15, the people in the capital were bewildered by the original edict. Obviously, the Jewish people in the capital had a good reputation. People didn't really want to kill them and take their stuff. Just Haman did. And probably mercenaries and people who want to take advantage, criminals and those type. And so the edict is passed that the Jews could be killed and their stuff taken. And I'm sure many people were contemplating, well, I could get in on this. It's like a cash grab. It's kind of like during the L.A. riots. Let's just smash some windows and take some TVs. And what happens is this other edict is, is written and it counteracts the first edict because now the Jews are able to defend themselves and take up arms. And instead of them being plundered, they, they have the possibility to plunder the other people. And so I'm sure a lot of people who had plans to attack the Jews decided, well... Maybe I'll pass on that opportunity. And I think what the author also wanted to show was the welfare of the Jews meant the good of the whole society. The the capital celebrated. And the Jews' trust in God, it must have contrasted greatly with the Persian trust in polytheism and many gods and the vanity of it and the misery of it. Because even in the midst of this, it says, many themselves declared themselves Jews at the end of chapter 8. That not only was there physical salvation, 
But there were those in the Persian world who turned from their idols and turned to the true and living God, Yahweh, and declared themselves Jews. That's God's sovereignty at work. Taking evil and turning it to good. It's like in the life of Joseph. His brothers selling him into slavery, hoping to never see him again. And then Joseph trying to do good and glorify God and being misunderstood and being thrown in prison because Potiphar's wife lied about him. And then as he's in prison, he's forgotten. And he's in prison for years and years, and he's forgotten. And you would wonder, where is God in the midst of this? Is he on his throne? Why is he allowing this godly man to suffer? But then at the right time, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. He's raised up, given the right hand of Pharaoh. And it's not only for his own deliverance, but for the deliverance of God's people. Because when his brothers come down, he delivers them, obviously through that whole chain of events that we don't have time to go into. But he tells his brothers, don't be afraid of me. I'm not going to kill you. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. Not only for good for me, but for saving an entire people. The family of Jacob delivering them. And in Egypt, as they came down in the famine, God turned that family into a nation. And then again, a Pharaoh raised up who did not know Yahweh, who persecuted the Jews, who tried to kill all the baby boys. And Moses was saved by being delivered down the river. And Moses is raised up as a deliverer to deliver God's people out of Egypt. And God destroyed his people's enemies in the Red Sea, delivering them. He does it over and over and over again. And the ultimate day of deliverance is when Jesus Christ comes back. And he makes everything right. And he destroys our enemies and his enemies. And it's going to be a glorious day when there is no more sin and no more sorrow and no more suffering. We long for that, don't we? We long for that day of justice and righteousness when it will be over the earth because Christ will rule and reign. Well, we see in chapter 9 the triumph of the Jews. As I said, Esther was brought to the king's court for such a time as this. And in chapter 9, we see the Jews' success, them destroying their enemies. Verse 1, now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them for fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful." And the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also, 
Parshandatha and Dalphin and Espatha and Parantha and Adalia and Aradatha and Parmashta and Arisai and Aradai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha. The enemy of the Jews, and they laid no hand on the plunder. Did you hear that? They laid no hand on the plunder. So they defended themselves. They killed their enemies. They killed their ultimate enemies, which was a fulfillment of prophecy. We looked at it in the first uh, sermon on Esther that God swore he would destroy the Amalekites off the earth. And here are the last descendants of the Amalekites, and they're still enemies of God's people. And in trying to destroy God's people, and I'm sure these ten sons were trying to take vengeance for their father's death, they're killed. And the Amalekites are ended, fulfilling God's prophecy, Deuteronomy 25, 19. That very day, verse 11, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. Even they didn't write the 10 names again. That was kind of nice. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done, and a decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder." So here you have verse 10, they didn't lay hands on the plunder. And again, verse 15, they didn't lay hands on the plunder. In fact, it's said three times. It's said again in verse 16, they laid no hands on the plunder. They weren't using material gain as a reason for their defense in contrast to the people who wanted to kill them. They simply defended their right to live. And one commentator said, this deliberate decision not to enrich themselves at the expense of their enemies, it would not go unnoticed in a culture where victors were expected to take the spoil. The very novelty of such a self-denial would be remarked upon and remembered and taken as proof of upright motives of the Jewish communities. See, that was the common thing in the culture was if you were in a battle, in a fight, and someone died, you took everything, you took whatever you wanted. The spoils go to the victor. For them not to take them, it would have been unusual and it would have been remarked upon. But it vindicates the motives of the Jewish people. It honors the glory of God, doesn't it? That in His sovereignty, He's allowed this. And so the queen asks again for the next day. I don't think she was bloodthirsty. I think she knew others were going to attack her people. And so she says, give us one more day to stomp out this rebellion, and sure enough, 300 more die in the capital. And then it's over. Verse 16, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day which they send gifts of food to one another. 
Now here we have the establishing of a great celebration, a feast. And the main theme of the book of Esther is the deliverance of God's people from destruction. And the end result is they celebrate this feast. We're going to hear briefly that the feast is called the Feast of Purim, the Feast of Lots. And this chapter gives instructions on when and in what ways to celebrate this joyful occasion. It becomes a holiday. Turn to Psalm 7. Psalm 7, as well as Psalm 37 that you heard this morning, have traditionally been associated with the Feast of Purim, this this holiday. And I just want to read you through it and notice how well it fits. Now, this is written by King David, not by somebody after um, the book of Esther, but listen to how well it fits and why it why it fits this holiday. Psalm 7, verse 1, O Lord my God, in You do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Sounds like, uh, could you imagine in this holiday as they're singing Psalm 7 saying, oh, we remember how we defended ourselves and didn't take their plunder. We're vindicated. We know before you, Lord, that we have the right motives. Verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Wow. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole he's made. That's Haman. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Uh, When I was a number of years ago, 1999, that is a number of years ago now, wow. I was working at the the oil refinery and I was working for a guy. I've told this story a while ago. I don't know how many of you have heard it, but I was working for a guy who hated me. And I was working directly for him. He hated me, and I didn't know why. And not only did he hate me, he would just just abuse me in meetings. And just, I, I can't even repeat the stuff he would say to, to other people in meetings about me while I was sitting there. And then he would take credit for my work. And I was maligned and slandered, and it was the first time I'd ever really had an enemy in my life. I mean, I had rivals in school because I grew up in Vallejo. You know, you get in a fight with them and then you're best friends. But this guy hated me. And it seemed to be without a cause. I had done nothing to him. I didn't know him from before. And he just did not like me. Come to find out he didn't like me because I was a Christian. 
Come to find out, the reason he didn't like me was not only was I was a Christian, I was going into pastoral ministry. And he hated pastors. Well, come to find out, the reason he hated pastors is his mom had been taken for $30,000 by a TV preacher who said, send me your money and you can be healed. And his mom wasn't healed, of course, and all her money was gone. And he was taking it out on me. And I can remember these kind of psalms, these kind of passages where I said, Lord, you know my heart. You know me. My conscience is clear, Lord. I want to glorify you. I don't have evil motives towards this man. I don't want his demise, but Lord, would you take him out of my life? And I worked for him for nine months. And then I swore I would never work with him again. And God has a sense of humor. Because in 2004, right before I came to the church here, I had to work for him for nine more months. And I tried to decline the job four times. But I didn't have another job prospect, and I had kids to feed, and I was hungry, and I had bills to pay. And so I humbled myself, and I worked for him again. And it was brutal again. And I wanted to take him out to the parking lot and lay hands on him. (laughs) Not in the biblical sense. And the Lord was teaching me this very thing. He was preparing me because pastoral ministry, people don't like you. Sometimes they talk bad about you. Sometimes they slander you. Have you had that happen to you? It's not unique to pastors or me. I know many of you in this room have probably had it happen. And there's nothing worse than being talked evil of and slandered and maligned and you feeling like, Lord, what in the world? I've tried to do right. I've tried to glorify you. I've tried to be honest and have integrity. And now my reputation is tarnished. Now I'm maligned. Now my job's at stake. Lord, what are you going to do? And what a wonderful opportunity to trust the Lord, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. That's what we see in the book of Esther. I mean, Mordecai was maligned. He was slandered. He had done nothing wrong. I suppose we could argue that he didn't bow before Haman. But Haman had a bone to pick with him. And I think it was satanically inspired to try to exterminate the Jewish people. That's what we saw last time. But here at this celebration, they're celebrating that the Lord has, in fact, vindicated his people. And I tell you what, that second time I worked for this guy, about halfway through, because I had worked hard in the same industry and had been in the oil refineries, other people knew me. The first time I worked with him, nobody knew me. They didn't know my reputation. They believed him. But the second time, after a couple months, I had worked hard and people knew me and they knew my reputation and they didn't believe him. And I felt vindicated. And I wanted to throw a party. I wanted to have an annual holiday. The Feast of Purim. Let's celebrate and give gifts. I've been vindicated. My name has been cleared. The Lord knows how to do it. He knows how to vindicate you. And deliver you and lift you up in due time. And if He hasn't yet, it's because He wants to teach you something he wants to glorify himself in you he wants you to trust him and not yourself well these victory feasts are established back to esther chapter 9 
Verse 20, Mordecai recorded these things. He sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. I love that, that it's not just gifts to one another, but gifts to the poor. That's true religion, to care for widows and orphans in their time of need. The Jews accepted when they started to do and what Mordecai had written for them for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in the matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So they take this word that means lot, casting the lot, and they call it their holiday. They actually redeem the word. They make it the name. It's the holiday of lots, of casting lots. That sounds superstitious, but to them, it's the holiday of God's sovereignty, isn't it? In Psalm 16, listen to what David writes. Lord, you've assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. Same word. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. That's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Imagine if you and your neighbor had to build a new fence and you decided to just, you know, you, the fence originally, it had not fallen in your favor and it was more on your property than his property. But then when you redo the fence... When they snap that line to put the fence in, it falls on his property rather than yours. You'd say, well, I gained six inches. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That's actually the picture of when the lots, when the, the lines of boundaries for property were passed out, you actually got a great property. It's fallen in a pleasant place. And here David says, metaphorically, God, the lot that you've given me, you've made my lot secure. And the lines in my life have fallen in pleasant places. I have a delightful inheritance. And isn't that true? The lines that have fallen for us have fallen around the Lord Jesus Christ, as it were. Our inheritance is Him. That's what we sang about. This is the power of the cross. That we're saved and delivered, not just physically, but we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven that is undefiled. It is reserved for us. Remember what Jesus said? Moth can't eat it. I got a brand new shirt two weeks ago. I wore it once, and I got a bunch of holes in the back of it from some stinking moths. I don't know. That or my children. I don't know which one it is. Moth cannot eat our inheritance. Rust cannot wear it away. Thieves cannot break in and steal and take our inheritance in Christ. 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we of all people have the most to celebrate. And we have a feast that we celebrate. The first of the month, it's called the Lord's Table, the day of remembrance, this feast, and it ought to be a joyous occasion because when we break bread together, when we share food together, it is celebrating the finished work of our Savior and that we're delivered and we're redeemed and our lines have fallen in pleasant places. God hasn't treated us as we deserved. He hasn't given us what we deserved, which was hell and death and separation from Him. He's given us His Son. And He loved us when we were enemies. And Christ died for us when we were helpless. When we were at our worst. He was made sin for us so that we might become God's righteousness in Him. This is the hope we have. This is a time to celebrate. I mean, this should make you of all people most happy. I know it makes the world mad. But it should make you happy that we have a Savior who died and was buried and rose again, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, who's on His throne, and He's working all things for our good and His glory. Amen. Amen. This is good news. This is what we preach. This is the Savior we have. We want Him to see. We want you to see Him in His glory and His sufficiency. And this is the theme of Esther is that God is on His throne and God delivers and protects His people. And so they threw a party. They're smart. That's what we ought to do is throw a party. And I love what it says about Queen Esther here. Verse 29. Queen Esther the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. And letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth. And that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them. And as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting, the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. I mean, we hear of the greatness of Mordecai in chapter 10, but here we have the greatness of Esther. One commentator wrote this, No other woman stands among God's people, wrote with authority to confirm and establish a religious practice. And it actually still stands today in the Jewish um, culture. The importance of most biblical women, the author goes on to write, such as Sarah and Hannah, lies in their motherhood. Esther's importance to the covenant people is not as a mother, but as a queen. And what a, what a beautiful display of how God uses his children, raised up for such a time as this. And not only is she raised up to deliver her people, she's raised up in such a way that she would establish a religious festival celebrating God's sovereign providence over their lives. The Feast of Lots. The Feast of God's Sovereignty. Well, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 3, you have this conclusion to the book, which is the greatness of Mordecai. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all the people.
Why was Mordecai so highly esteemed? Two reasons are mentioned. First, he worked for the good of his own people. Second, he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. And third, he spoke peace to all his people. He put the welfare of his people before his own personal interests. You see, the challenge of the book of Esther, I think, is the challenge to recognize when our time, as it were, has come to act. Esther was raised up for such a time as this. We are, think of Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship. His handiwork, his poema in the Greek, it's beautiful picture. We are his masterpiece, we're his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works that he's prepared in advance so that you and I should walk in those good works. That means you and I have good works ahead of us. Otherwise, he'd take us home to be with him. We have good works ahead of us to walk in that he's prepared, and we are his workmanship, his handiwork. We're his display, right? Think about an art exhibit. You go to an art exhibit, and you marvel and wonder at the art But ultimately, it points to the artist, not the art itself. And you praise the artist for the wonder of his art. And we have good works prepared for us, raised up for such a time as this, 2017 in Brentwood, in Knightson, in this community, to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom, to be ministering, pouring out grace into the lives of people to walk in those good works and people will see those good works and glorify our father in heaven because of it and so that's the challenge of the book of esther and i I think it's very relevant as we live in a society that has become hostile to the gospel esther had to to speak in in a society that was hostile we have to speak in the midst of a society hostile to the gospel. That's hard to say three times fast, hostile to the gospel. Hebrews 10, turn over there. We're just going to close with this uh, passage. In Hebrews 10, I was thinking about a New Testament passage that really applies to this. How do we live out God's purposes for us And here in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19 to get the context, it says, Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's what we're supposed to do. Let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. Second, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Third, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, Christ has interceded for us. That's what verse 19 says. Just as Esther interceded for her people, the condemned Jews, Christ interceded for us, the condemned race, the human race. We were without hope and without God, Ephesians tells us. 
but we've been brought near through the blood of Christ. And here in verse 19, we have confidence, we have boldness to enter into God's very presence through the blood of Jesus. It's a new, it's a living way that He opened through His flesh by going to the cross. And so we have not only a new way to God, we now have a new high priest who will ever live to intercede for us, Hebrews tells us. And he's over the house of God. And so we can draw near in full confidence. I hope that the book of Esther shows you that just because you're suffering, just because people are against you, doesn't necessarily mean God's punishing you. He is for you, child of God. He is not against you. You can draw near to Him with full confidence. You don't have to shrink away in fear. The gospel tells us we have a new and living way. And so we can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Second, we hold fast our confession, verse 23, without wavering. Why? Because the Father who promised is faithful. 2 Corinthians 1, all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. Verses 18 to 20. And so we can hold fast our confession. We don't have to abandon the faith. Have you ever been tempted to think that this Christianity thing is just not working out? Have you been tempted to think that, man, I tried Christianity. It didn't make my life better. It just made it worse. And I think I'm just going to you know, chuck it all and go back to, you know, driving my ski boat and partying on the weekends and working the overtime so I can buy all my toys and give all my kids things and just punt on this Christianity thing. If we're honest, all of us have questioned at times if this is really true. And what we need to remind ourselves is that we have a Savior in heaven who's seated at the right hand of the Father who's interceding for us. And not only is this true, but this is good news and we can hold fast our confession without wavering because the Father who promised to restore all things and make all things right and to answer all sorrows and to wipe away all tears, He's faithful. And He's going to finish it all. And the promise that he's going to finish it all was seen at the cross when Jesus said, it's finished. And then he poured out his spirit as a down payment and pledge so that we are not left alone and Christ is coming back and he's going to make all things right. So hold fast your confession without wavering. And third, he says, don't neglect to meet together. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. It might be that you were raised up for such a time as this today to speak the gospel to your brother or your sister, to stir them on to love and good deeds, that they were about ready to give up and not hold fast their confession. And you spoke a timely word into their lives to stir them on to love and good deeds, and they went on to glorify the Lord and be used greatly of Him. What a glorious thought. That in the sovereignty of God, we gather together for this purpose in community to stir one another to love and good deeds, to encourage one another, especially knowing that the day's coming when Christ is coming back. Well, I hope this encourages you. I hope it gives you great hope to not worry, to not be anxious about tomorrow, to not be fearful about today about the medical diagnosis you have or the money you don't have 
or the broken relationships in your family or the battle with depression or the struggle with indwelling sin that remains. All of those things are a reality, aren't they? Sometimes we feel like we come to church and we have to put on a plastic face and a plastic smile and pretend everything's okay. But sometimes we come and we're broken and things aren't okay and we're a mess. But the hope we have is not in us, is it? The hope we have is in a Savior who is able to save to the uttermost, who is able to deliver you today who is able not only to save you in the future from the penalty of sin and hell, but He's able to save you right now in your weakness and in your brokenness. He's able to give you peace because He's the Prince of Peace. He's able to give you hope because He's alive and seated at the right hand of the Father, and He gives you hope that will never be put to shame. He's able to give you joy in the midst of circumstances where you can have indestructible joy knowing that your name is written in the book of life. And though he slay you, yet you will trust him. That's the kind of hope Job had. This is the hope we can have in Christ. God protects his people, and he's done it through his son. And he's poured out his spirit into our lives so that we will be more like Jesus And not only that, He's left us here for a purpose. To spread His gospel, to do these good works that He's prepared in advance. I hope that gets you excited about this week. That He has good works prepared for you to do. You are not a waste. You are not useless in the kingdom. You are not unnecessary to God. He delights to use us to advance his purposes just like he used esther just like he used mordecai he delights to use us oh and to be sure he uses crooked sticks doesn't he he uses clay pots so that his glory may be seen in us father thank you for this word thank you for my brothers and sisters they are such an encouragement to me I cannot say how many times there has been a word timely spoken as I've been with them that has spurred me on to love and good deeds. Thank you for them, Father. I pray for them. I know some of their circumstances. I don't know all of them. But I know there's hurting people here today. People who are weary and worn out because of life in this fallen world. And their enemies are just plaguing them. And very oftentimes our enemies aren't even physical. They're the world, the flesh, and the devil. Oh, Father, would you remind them that you are on your throne. You have loved them with an indestructible love and you've given them a son. And not only that, you've poured out your spirit into their hearts so that they will never be alone, so that they'll be more like Jesus so that they will be ready to do those good works that you've prepared because the Spirit who's in them is going to empower them to do those good works. Use us as a church. Don't pass us by, Father. We know you don't need us, but would you use us in this community? Use us. Would you finish this building for your glory so that it could be a strategic place for your kingdom to equip and send people out 
where people could hear your gospel and come to Christ, where we would see multitudes come, enter into the kingdom, be saved and delivered from the wrath to come. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.